How do you do? This is Clive Brooks. Have you ever thought how often criminal trials hinge on the question of identification? The more one reflects on this point, the more one marvels at the really extraordinary powers of observation and memory that the most unlikely people seem to possess. For instance, a murder has been committed, and a passerby has seen a man hurry away from the scene. It's probably nighttime, and he's had no more than a glimpse of somebody under a street lamp. Yet he's able to say quite positively that he was tall and thin, in his middle fifties, with a muffled complexion, a broken nose, and a mole under his left eye. Moreover, he's able to describe his dress, right down to his boots. Not only does he tell the police this, but he swears it again in court. Now, this is very good if it helps to send a guilty man to the gallows. But even with the best and most honest intention, anyone's liable to make a mistake, and a mistake of that kind may have tragic results. Let me tell you of such a case, and how only the merest fluke saved a grave miscarriage of justice. Many years, Jean Milne, a spinster, had been a well-known figure in the district of Broughty Ferry, Dundee. The sole heiress of her brother, a wealthy tobacco manufacturer, she had, since his death nine years before, lived alone in the family home, Elm Grove House, a 14-roomed mansion standing in about two acres of thickly treed ground. Now, despite her solitude and her advancing years, she was a woman with a zest for life. Her clothes were gay, if perhaps a trifle girlish for a woman of 65, and at least twice a year it was a habit to spend two or three months in London. Consequently, when in late October 1912, neighbors failed to see her about and noted that Elm Grove House was locked and apparently deserted, they merely concluded she'd gone off for another jaunt to the city. But this explanation didn't altogether satisfy the local postman. By November the 2nd, when more than a fortnight's mail had accumulated in Miss Milne's letterbox, he thought it was time the police were informed. The local sergeant, I regret to say, did not at first take his report very seriously. Oh, man, what are you worrying about? Suppose she's not been home for a fortnight. You ought to know her ladyship's habits by now. She's gone gadding off again, I'll be bound. Well, that's what I'm trying to tell you. Every time she's gone off before, she's let me know and left a forwarding address. Maybe she forgot this time or left in too much of a hurry to see you. Ah, but if she had, don't you think she'd have written to the post office? Well, perhaps it's just And that... I'll tell you something else, sergeant. When she's gone away afore, she's always had a word to Constable Bruce on the beach so you keep an eye to the empty house. And she's not done that this No, time. she's not. Mm -hmm. And it's my opinion it's your duty to make a few inquiries. Living in that big house all by herself, the woman might be ill or dead for all we can. Well, I'll talk to the constable when he comes in and we'll see what's to be done. Next morning, the two policemen went to the house. All the doors and windows were locked. There was no sign of life. For five minutes or more, they rang the bell and thumped on the front door. There was no response. All right, all right, that's enough, that's enough. It's obvious there's no one there. What are we going to do now, Sergeant? We'll have to force an entry, I suppose. Uh, here, I'll break this window. Give me a leg up, will you, Sergeant? Ah, there you are. Thanks, I'm right to know. Shan't be a minute. There we are, as easy as falling off a log. Uh -huh. Smells sort of musty, doesn't it? Are you there, Miss Milne? Is anyone at home? It's plain the place is empty. Shall we look around, Sergeant? Aye. Come on. Through this hole and up. Why, what is it? 
Good God, it's Miss May. Aye, oh, that's left of her, you mean. Look at those wounds about the head and all the bloodstains. And the furniture upset and that poker, it, it's murder. Aye, and by the look of things, it's happened a long time since. What do you suppose we should do? Don't touch a thing. This is no a job for us, lad. You stay here and keep guard, and I'll go back to the station and telephone Glasgow. Glasgow's prompt answer was to send Detective Lieutenant Trench to Broughty Ferry. By the way, three years earlier, Trench had become famous for his handling of the Oscar Slater case, and he was recognized as the most capable detective in Scotland. His first task was to establish the approximate date of the crime. When did your estimate death took place, Doctor? Hmm, it's hard to be precise, but I should say about three weeks ago. Hmm, it's now November the 3rd. That would take us back to, uh, let's see, about October the 13th, eh? That's right. How did that tell you with your inquiry, Sergeant? Well, sir, the earliest letter in the mailbox was dated October the 14th. Miss Milne was definitely seen alive at a home mission meeting in Dundee on October the 15th. But there was no response when Mr. Kinnear, uh, he's an elder in St. Andrew's Church, uh, hmm. called here at the house to see her the following day. Yeah, it seems reasonable to presume she was killed either on the evening of the 15th or the morning of the 16th. Well, that would seem to be right enough, sir. Good. I wanted to send some of your men out. They're to interview everyone in the neighborhood and find out if anyone saw Miss Milne or anyone else about the house during that period. Yes, sir. I'll attend to that at once, sir. Any theories, Lieutenant? Oh, it's a little early for that, I'm afraid. However, there are a few obvious points that suggest it was a man with whom Miss Milne was on friendly terms. How do you work that out? Well, in the first place, the dining room was set for high tea for two. That rather suggests the evening of the 15th of the time, doesn't it? Yes, it does. In the second place, although I understand she was a teetotaler herself, Miss Milne, on the morning of the 15th, had her grocer deliver a bottle of whiskey to the house. When she gave the order, she explained she was expecting a gentleman friend at tea. She may only have said that, of course. She was a little inclined to uh, romanticize, you know. Yes, even so. In the third place, since no entry to the house was forced, we must presume she let the murderer in through the front door. And he duly let himself out the same way. In the fourth place, no money or jewelry appears to have been stolen, which rules out the theft motive. And finally, I found this in the grate. A half-smoked cigar. Well, I'm blessed. Why does that surprise you so much? You didn't know Miss Millen, of course. But whatever she did in London, I can tell you she led a life of the strictest propriety here at home. Oh, my dear fellow, you're not suggesting there's anything improper in a woman of 65 entertaining a man to tea, are you? Myself, no. But you know how people talk in these small communities. And in any case, Miss Milne was practically a hermit. Weeks often went by without her having a single caller. As far as I'm aware, she had no friends in the district at all. Real friends, I mean. Male or female. Mm, perhaps her caller on this occasion didn't live in the district. Perhaps he was someone she'd met in London. That could be so, of course. Well, Lieutenant, you've got the problem before you. I wish you luck. Thanks. Well, I've an idea I'm going to need it before this case is over. There was precious little else in the way of clues to reward the painstaking trench. There were no identifiable fingerprints discovered in the house, nor even on the murder weapon itself, the poker that had been found by Miss Milne's body. Her private papers yielded nothing that might give a lead except one or two rather coy references to a dashing but anonymous American she had met in London. And most of the unclaimed mail in the box was either business correspondence or begging letters. The few of her male acquaintances at Broughty Ferry who might conceivably have visited her for tea were able to establish their movements satisfactorily. And in any case, most of them were connected with the church and therefore hardly likely to drink whiskey and smoke cigars. It wasn't until the police offered a reward of a hundred pounds that things really started to happen. 
first to compose was one Margaret Campbell. You say, Miss Campbell, you're a maid employed in the house next door to Miss Milne's. Aye, that's right, sir. And from the upper windows, you can see part of the grounds of Elm Grove House. Aye. And in fact, on October the 15th or 16th, did you see anyone or anything there? Not in those days, sir. But a few days earlier, um, round about the 12th, it would be, I, I happened to look out and I, I saw a gentleman walking in the garden. Did you take particular note of him? Aye, sir, I did. It was so unusual to see anyone but Miss Milner, the gardener, you understand. Hmm, quite. Could you describe him, do you think? Well, he was a tall, handsome man of about uh, 40, I would say. He had round features and, and fair hair. And he was wearing a dark suit, sir. Was he clean-shaven? Oh, that I couldn't say, sir. I was looking down on him, you understand. Yes, I see. Did you mention to anyone else that you'd seen him? Aye, sir. When I went downstairs, I told mistress. You didn't see this man again? No, sir. Oh, thank you very much. I'll get you to put what you've told me into the form of a statement, if you don't mind. So far, so good. Of course, the fact that this man had been seen there three days before the murder didn't necessarily implicate him in it. Still, it was a start, and more was to follow. The next to volunteer information was John Dunn, a garbage collector. I was at work about 4.30 in the morning on October 16th in Grove Road, when I see a man come out the small door of the main entrance gate at Elm Grove. Oh? What did he do? He stopped for a moment and looked up and down the road. Then when he saw me and realized I'd seen him, he walked off briskly and disappeared round the bend in the road. Did you get a good look at him? Aye, good enough. It was near a dark morning, and he walked right under a gas lamp. Hmm. I'd say he was between 30 and 40. Tall and well-built with a sort of a pale face and a fair moustache. He wore a bowler hat and a dark overcoat. Would you recognize him again if you saw him? Ah, easy. I think I would. Thank you, Mr. Don. Hello. It seemed the search was narrowing, but more was to follow. Much more. Next to volunteer a sight of the mysterious stranger was John Wood, who had worked occasionally for the murdered woman as a gardener. All right, Mr. Wood. Let's hear what you have to say. Well, sir, I used to understand Miss Milne more than most people, as you might say, and she used to talk to me and tell me things she'd never owned to others. Yes, go on. Last August, when she returned from London, she told me she'd been staying at a hotel in the Strand, and she'd met a foreign gentleman there, a tea planter, I think it was. Did you say what nationality he was? A German, I think it was, sir, though I'd not be sure. Might it have been an American? Aye, it might have been. I didn't pay much heed at the time. Well, on the 19th of September, I, I know the date because I've got it in the little book where I keep my note of my wages. Hmm. I was in the house doing odd jobs for Miss Moon when the doorbell rang. I answered it and there was a gentleman, sir, who said to me, Is Miss Moon in? Did you notice his accent? Just foreign, sir, that's all I can say. So I told Miss Milne, and she skipped along the passageway just like a lassie to welcome him. Do you remember what she said? Something like, you've come, I knew you would. Then she gave me two shillings and packed me off home. What did this man look like? He was about 40, I should say. Maybe five foot nine, a well-made man. Hmm. Dark or fair? Fair, with a wee fair moustache and a fresh face. Well dressed? Aye, morning coat and dark trousers. A real gent, as you might say. And his voice? Apart from the accent, I mean, was it deep or pitched high? It was deep, sir, and sort of, well, sort of guttural, I suppose you'd call it. 
person that's saying it's a man who murdered Miss Mills. Still, I thought you should know. Yes, you did quite the right thing, Mr. Wood. Thank you very much. Then there was a taxi driver, Frederick Ewing, who remembered early on the morning of October the 15th, taking a fare from the south train to Broughty Ferry in the vicinity of Elm Grove House. He was a smartly dressed man, well built, between 35 and 40, I'd say, pale complexion, fair moustache. I didn't notice anything particular about his accent. I'd have said he was English, sinister-looking sort of fellow. I was glad to get rid of him, I can tell you. Hard on the taxi driver's heels came two sisters named Mackintosh. On October the 7th, they said, they'd been visiting a relative in Grove Road, and as they were passing Elm Grove about 8.30pm, they were surprised, knowing Miss Mill's reclusive habits, to see a man emerging from the front gate. Their description of him? He was a tallish, well-built man in early middle age. Fair-haired, with a small moustache and a rather round, ruddy face. He looked as though he might be a foreigner. Uh, judging by his clothes and general manner, he was certainly a gentleman. So many descriptions that tallied so exactly couldn't possibly be put down to coincidence. Where the case had seemed hopeless at the beginning, the prospects of a solution now appeared extremely bright. Let him once lay hands on the guilty man, Trench thought, and he'd had no difficulty about positive identification. So he circulated to every police station in Great Britain a full description of the murdered woman's mysterious friend, and then sat back and waited for results. They came quickly and dramatically, as you shall hear. Dundee, investigations into the murder of Jean Mill were proceeding. In Maidstone Jail, serving a short sentence for having obtained a meal at a hotel without the means to pay for it, but a man who had given his name as Charles Warner, and his address as 210 Wilton Avenue, Toronto, Canada. And to Maidstone Jail, while he was still a guest there, came a copy of the circular from Detective Lieutenant Trench, describing in detail the appearance of the man whom he believed to be Miss Mill's murderer. Listen to this, Bill. Age about 40, height about 5 feet 9, weight 11 to 12 stone. Fair hair, round face, ruddy complexion, fair moustache, deep voice, well-dressed of gentlemanly aspect. Maybe German or American. American? You don't think it could be that fellow Warner, do you? That's just what I was wondering. He answers his description, all right. Of course, you couldn't say he was exactly well-dressed when we brought well, him uh, in. Might have been disguised, you know. Exactly. And anyway, old clothes or no, there's no mistaking from the way he speaks and goes on generally. He's a gentleman, all right. Anyone with half an eye could spot that. What do you reckon we ought to do, Bill? Report it to the governor, of course. Let him worry about it from now on. The governor of the jail acted promptly. Within an hour, photographs of Warner were taken, and the same evening they were mailed to Trench in Dundee. In due course, they were shown to the various witnesses. One and all agreed Warner was the man they had seen. But Trench was cautious and thorough. Determined to make sure before he took positive action, he arranged for five of his witnesses to travel down by train to Maidstone. They were Margaret Campbell, the maid, John Don, the garbage collector, John Wood, the gardener, and the two Mrs. McIntosh. There, the governor took them separately into an exercise yard at the jail, where 11 men, including Warner, were standing in line. First came Margaret Campbell. Now, Miss Campbell, I want you to look carefully at these 11 men, and I want you to tell me if you recognize any one of them as the man you saw in Miss Milne's garden. 
I said I'll, I'll do my best. Well, he, it's not the tall one in the line. Not again the one next to him, sir. Nor he, no, never yet the next. It's awful harsh when they've all got their hats on, sir. The man I saw was bareheaded. Well, we'll soon fix that. Uh, take your hats off, please. Well, young lady, does that help you? Aye, sir. I know him right enough now. It's this one. You're quite sure of that? Well, his hair's a shade greyer than I'd thought it was, but I can't forget his eyes. Thank you. That's, uh, that's all I want to know. Then John Darling, please. And so it went on. One by one, the witnesses came into the yard, inspected the lineup, and identified Charles Warner as the man they had seen at Elm Grove House. Warner had begun by treating the proceedings as rather a joke, never suspecting they were directed against him. But as one after another picked him out, he began to lose his composure. And finally, when the last of the witnesses, one of the Mrs. McIntosh, pointed to him, he could restrain himself no longer. It's not fair. I protest. I'm the victim of a conspiracy. What do you mean by that? I mean they must be telling each other where I stand in the line. That's not true. No one told me anything. They must have. The whole thing's a put-up job. It's a farce. All the others made me take my hat off. Don't you want me to as well? No, I don't. I know you quite well without that. I'm perfectly satisfied you're the man. That's fine. That's swell. What am I supposed to have done? What am I being framed for? I advise you to moderate your language, my man. You're not being framed, as you put it, for anything. We don't do things like that in this country. Oh, no? No. And as to the rest of it, you'll know in due course. All right. Praise Charles Warner was not left wondering for long. Next morning, his 14 days imprisonment ended, and at the prison gates, as he was about to leave, technically at least a free man, a plain-clothes policeman stepped forward and laid a hand on his arm. It was Detective Lieutenant Trench. <laughs> Charles Warner? Sure, that's me. I have a warrant for your arrest. Well, for Pete's sake, what am I supposed to have done? You're charged with that on or about the 15th of October at Broadway Ferry, Dundee, you did feloniously murder one Jean Mill. You're crazy. I've never been in Dundee in my life, and I've never even heard of this Dame Mill, or whatever her name is. You've no need to make a statement now. It's my duty to warn you that anything you say may be taken down in writing and used in evidence. Okay, okay, I get it. But someone's going to be sorry for this in a few days. I'm warning you right now. I'm warning you. During a long train journey on the way up to Dundee, Trench had a good acquainted with his prisoner and to form some opinion of his general character. He couldn't help being impressed by what state forwardness and frankness. Phyllis Trench well knew these are characteristics common to many murderers. So he allowed the second duly to influence him. Although under no obligation to do so, Warner gave a full account of his recent movement. You say you've been on this side of the world for about four months, Warner. Sure, that's right. What brought you here in the first place? Did you have some prospect of a position? No, I just got kind of sick of staying around at home in Toronto, so I thought I'd rather have a look at Europe. Mm, just a holiday visit, eh? Yeah, I had a few dollars of my own, and my brother offered to stake me when that ran out. So it seemed like too good a chance to miss. Mm. And what have your movements been since you came here? Well, first I landed up at Le Havre. Then I went to Paris and spent six or eight weeks there. When did you first come to England? Around about the first week in September. Are you sure you weren't here in August? Staying at the Strand Palace Hotel in London? Sure, I'm sure. Where did you stay in London? Oh, some little John in Bayswater. I forget the name. And after that? Well, things got a bit tough. My money ran out, you see. 
How about the allowance your brother was going to send you? He died in the meantime, so I couldn't count on anything from there. I see. So what did you do? Well, I heard some talk of jobs that were going in Liverpool, so I went up there. I stayed in the boarding house at Seacombe, but there was nothing doing in the way of work, so I stayed away on a ship and had a look at Holland and Belgium. When was this? Around about the middle of October, I guess. And what cities were you in? Amsterdam, mainly, and Brussels and Antwerp. What were you doing? How did you manage to live without money? Oh, I picked up a few pence here and there doing odd jobs. Most of the time, I slept in parks. Mm. And when did you return to England? Around about the end of October. I wouldn't be sure of the date. Then I figured it was time I stopped hobbying around and went home to Canada. I thought if I walked south, I might pick up another ship and work my way home as a stoker or something. Instead of which, you finished up in Maidstone Jail, eh? Sure. When I was passing through Tonbridge, I thought I might be able to bluff my way to a free meal, but I thought wrong. And there you have it, Lieutenant. The full history of Charles Warner. You can check on it if you don't believe me. But that was just the trouble. It seemed a simple and plain enough story, and yet it was shot through and through with gaps. There were whole days during Warner's stay in Liverpool, for instance. They could not be accounted for. Days on which he might easily have gone north to Dundee. There was a whole period of his second visit to the continent. When Trench reported progress back to his chief in Glasgow, he was plainly worried about the whole affair. I don't know, sir. Just about got me bamboozled. What's the trouble, Trench? Well, sir, I've always prided myself on my ability to read a man's character. You wouldn't have caught him. I'd be prepared to stake a month's pay, Warner isn't a murderer. And yet? And yet, sir, there are those gaps in his story. He may be telling the truth, and he may not. There's no means of finding out either way. And, of course, the evidence of identification. Yes. You might expect one person to make an honest mistake, but five? Well, I mean you can't ignore overwhelming evidence like that. Weren't there other people who were supposed to have seen this mysterious stranger in the neighborhood of Broughty Ferry? Oh, any amount of them. There was a taxi driver, for instance, who took a fare to Grove Rose on the morning of the murder. There were some children who said they saw a man coming out of Miss Milne's house. There was a barber who said he shaved a strange man. There were two ladies who claimed to have seen Miss Milne with a man in London. There was a post office clerk who declares a man in asking his way to Elmgrove House. There was a workman travelling on the car from Broughty Ferry to Dundee on the morning after the murder who reported he'd seen another passenger behaving in a suspicious manner. In fact, if Warner is the man we're for, he's managed to get himself seen by almost every president. Don't you call all these witnesses in and see if they can identify him in a lineup? Do you think it'll prove anything, sir? It might. You never know. All right, sir. I'll do it. And so on November the 29th, Warner was paraded among other men before no less than 22 fresh witnesses. We don't know the exact figures, but we do know that at least half of them positively identified him as a man they had seen. By now, the accused man was becoming desperate. I tell you they're mistaken, every one of them. You've got to believe me, Lieutenant. You're arguing against a great weight of numbers, you know, Warner. Maybe so, but they're mixing me up with some other guy. You're double eh? Well, why not? Things like that do happen, don't they? Yes, on rare occasions. Couldn't this be one of them? Look, bring me a stack of Bibles and I'll swear to you on the whole lot of them that I'm not guilty of this crime. I've never murdered anyone in my life. Until I, you brought me here, I've never been north of Liverpool in my life. And I've never clapped eyes on Jean Lowe in my life. You ought to know when I'm telling the truth. Can't you see I'm not lying? I don't know. I don't know what to think. You say you were in Antwerp the day Miss Moon was killed. If only you could prove that, you'd be clear. But how can I prove it? I've already told I was broke, scrounging a few odd sous here and there and sleeping in the park. Surely there must be someone you spoke to that day. 
Something you did that could be checked on. Something to prove your story. Think, man. Think. Oh, I thought I'm almost crazy. But tell there's nothing. Not a thing. Well, I'm afraid there's nothing I can do to help you. If you are, Mr. Warner, you've got yourself in the most incredibly tight corner. You're telling me. Five weeks passed with Warner still in jail. Then on the 3rd of January, 1913, pending to him with news. I'm sorry, Warner. But the trucker, the fiscal of Dundee, has completed his case against you. What's that mean? It means you're to stand your trial tomorrow week. Oh. I suppose they've got quite a swag of evidence against me. Well, I understand something like a hundred witnesses are to be called. Ah, their word against mine. I don't suppose I'll have a show. Frankly, I don't think so. Unless you can find some way between now and then of proving you were in Antwerp on October the 15th. Ah, what's the good? We've been over that again and again. Well, if you do think of anything, some person you might have talked to, some documentary evidence, a piece of paper, for instance. Wait a minute. What is it? A piece of paper. That's it. I think I've got it. When I came in here, the police took an old wallet from me. Where is it now? Hmm? Well, they're holding it for you, I dare say. Would I have a chance of getting it to your face? Oh. In fact, I'll go out to the charge room now and collect it myself, if you like. Within five minutes, the wallet containing a miscellaneous selection of papers was in Warner's hands. He sorted through it with feverish haste, his hands trembling with excitement, his eyes gleaming with a new hope. And then, at last... Here it is! I know I've kept it! Well, what is it? Look for yourself. On the 15th of October, I was so dead broke, I pawned my waistcoat in Antwerp for a franc. Hmm? This is the ticket, and it's got the date on it. You're right. I'll be back in a couple of days. Hey, where are you going with that ticket? To Antwerp, of course. Check your story. And redeem your waistcoat. Three days later, Trench returned to Edinburgh with a perfect alibi. Wrapped to the brown paper parcel. That same evening, the procurator fiscal received the telegram from the Scottish Crown Office. In regard to Charles Warner, charged with murder. Crown Council have considered precognition and decided evidence insufficient. Please liberate. And so ended the ordeal by identification of Charles Warner, an innocent man against whom more than a dozen honest witnesses were prepared to swear evidence that would have sent him to his death. And who did kill Jean Milne? That was never resolved, and her case remains today and is likely to remain in the file of unsolved crime. I'll be back again soon to tell you some more of the secrets of Scotland Yard. Meanwhile, this is Ty Brooks saying goodbye and pleasant dreams.